Chapter 19, Part 2 of Aeroplanes and Dirigibles of War by Frederick A. Talbot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Aeroplanes and Dirigibles of War by Frederick A. Talbot. Chapter 19, The Navies of the Air, Part 2. It is computed that upon the outbreak of war, the various powers were in the position to show an aggregate of 4,980 aircraft of all descriptions, both for active service and reserve. This is a colossal fleet, but it serves to convey in a graphic manner the importance attached to the aerial vessel by the respective belligerents. So far as Germany is concerned, she is sorely in need of additional machines. Her fleet of the air has lost its formidable character, owing to the fact that it has to be divided between two frontiers, while she has been further weakened by the enormous lengths of the two battlefronts. Russia has been able to concentrate her aerial force, which has proved of incalculable value to the Grand Duke Nicholas, who has expressed his appreciation of the services rendered by his flyers the french likewise have been favored by fortune in this respect their aerial navy is likewise concentrated upon a single frontier although a pronounced proportion has been reserved for service upon the mediterranean seaboard for cooperation with the fleet france suffers however to a certain degree from the length of her battle line which is over two hundred miles in length the french aerial fleet has been particularly active in the vosges and the argonne where the difficult, mountainous, and densely wooded country has rendered other systems of observation of the enemy's movements a matter of extreme difficulty. The Germans have labored under a similar handicap in this territory, and have likewise been compelled to center a considerable portion of their aerial fleet upon this corner of the extended battlefield it is in this region that the greatest wastage has been manifest i have been informed by one correspondent who is fighting in this sternly contested area that at one time a daily loss of ten german machines was a fair average while high water mark was reached so far as his own observations and ability to glean information were concerned by the loss of nineteen machines during a single day the french wastage while not so heavy upon the average has been considerable at times the term wastage is somewhat misleading if not erroneous it does not necessarily imply the total loss of a machine such as its descent upon hostile territory but includes damage to machines no matter how slight landing within their own lines in the difficult country of the vosges many aeroplanes have come to earth somewhat heavily and have suffered such damage as to render them inoperative compelling their removal from the effective list until they have undergone complete overhaul or reconstruction upon occasions this wastage has been so pronounced that the french aviators including some of the foremost flyers serving with the forces have been without a machine and have been compelled to wait their turn i am informed that one day four machines returning from a reconnaissance in force crashed successively to the ground and each had to be hauled away to the repair sheds necessitating withdrawal from service for several days unfortunately the french owing to their decision to rule out certain machines as unsuited to military service have not yet perfected their organization for making good this wastage although latterly it has been appreciably reduced by greater care among the aviators in handling their vessels 
The fast vessels of the French aerial fleet have proved exceptionally valuable. With these craft speeds of 95 and 100 miles or more per hour have been attained under favorable conditions, and pace has proved distinctly advantageous inasmuch as it gives the French aviators a superiority of about 40% over the average German machine. It was the activity and daring of the French flyers upon these high-speed machines which induced the German airmen to change their tactics. Individual effort and isolated raiding operations were abandoned in favor of what might be described as combined or squadron attack. Six or eight machines advancing together towards the French lines somewhat nonplussed these fleet French mosquito craft and to a certain degree nullified their superiority in pace. Speed was discounted for the simple reason that the enemy, when so massed, evinced a disposition to fight and to follow harassing tactics when one of the slowest French machines ventured into the air. It is interesting to observe that aerial operations, now that they are being conducted upon what may be termed methodical lines, as distinct from corsair movements, are following the broad fundamental principles of naval tactics. Homogeneous squadrons that is, squadrons composed of vessels of similar type and armament, put out and follow roughly the single line ahead formation. Upon sighting the enemy, there is the maneuvering for position advantage, which must accrue to the speedier protagonist. One, then, witnesses what might almost be described as an application of the process of capping the line, or crossing the T. This tends to throw the slower squadron into confusion by bending it back upon itself meanwhile exposing it to a demoralizing fire. The analogy is not precisely correct, but sufficiently so to indicate that aerial battles will be fought much upon the same lines as engagements between vessels upon the water. If the maneuvers accomplish nothing beyond breaking up and scattering the foe, the result is satisfactory, inasmuch as in this event it is possible to exert a driving tendency and to force him back upon the lines of the superior force when the scattered vessels may be brought within the zone of spirited fire from the ground. Attacks in force are more likely to prove successful than individual raiding tactics. As recent events upon the battlefield of Europe have demonstrated, more or less convincingly, an attack in force is likely to cause the defenders upon the ground beneath to lose their heads and to fire wildly and at random with the result that the airmen may achieve their object with but little damage to themselves. This method of attacking in force was essayed for the first time by the British aerial fleet, which perhaps is not surprising, seeing that the machines are manned and the operations supervised by officers who have excelled in naval training and who are skilled in such movements. No doubt, this practice, combined with the daring of the British aviators, contributed very materially to the utter demoralization of the German aerial forces, and was responsible for that hesitancy to attack a position in the vicinity of the British craft, which became so manifest in the course of a few weeks after the outbreak of hostilities. One of the most foremost military experts of the United States, who passed some time in the fighting zone, expressed his opinion that the British aerial force is the most efficient among the belligerents when considered as a unit, the French flyer being described by the same authority as most effective when acting individually owing to personal intrepidity.
As a scout, the French aviator is probably unequaled, because he is quick to perceive and to collect the data required, and, when provided with a fast machine, is remarkably nimble and venturesome in the air. The British aviators, however, work as a whole, and in the particular phases where such tactics are profitable have established incontestable superiority. At first, the German aerial force appeared to possess no settled system of operation. Individual effort was pronounced, but it lacked method. The Germans have, however, profited from the lessons taught by their antagonists, and now are emulating their tactics, but owing to their imperfect training and knowledge, the results they achieve appear to be negligible. The dirigible still remains an unknown quantity in these activities. Although strange to relate, in the early days of the war, the work accomplished by the British craft, despite their comparatively low speed and small dimensions, excelled in value that achieved by the warplanes. This was particularly noticeable in matters pertaining to reconnaissance, more especially at night, when the British vessels often remained for hours together in the air, maneuvering over the hostile lines and gathering invaluable information as to the disposition and movements of the opposing forces. But it is probably in connection with naval operations that the British aerial fleet excels. The waterplanes have established their supremacy over the naval dirigible in a striking manner. British endeavor fostered the waterplane movement and has carried it to a high degree of perfection. The waterplane is not primarily designed to perform long flights, although such may be carried out if the exigencies demand. The practice of deputing certain vessels to art as parent ships to a covey of waterplanes has proved as successful in practice as in theory. Again, the arrangements for conveying these machines by such means to a rendezvous and there putting them into the water to complete a certain duty have been triumphantly vindicated. At the time this idea was embraced, it met with a certain degree of hostile criticism. It was argued that the association of the two fighting machines would tend towards confusion and impair the efficiency of both. Practice has refuted this theory. The British aerial raids upon Cuxhaven and other places would have been impossible and probably valueless as an effective move, but for the fact that it was possible to release the machines from a certain point upon the open sea within easy reach of the cooperating naval squadron. True, the latter was exposed to hostile attack from submarines, but as results proved, this was easy to repel. The aircraft were enabled to return to their base, as represented by the rendezvous, to be picked up and to communicate the intelligence gained from their flight to the authorities in a shorter period of time than would have been possible under any other circumstances, while the risk to the airmen was proportionately reduced. The fact that the belligerents have built up such huge aerial navies conclusively proves that the military value of the fourth arm has been fully appreciated from the results so far achieved, there is every indication that activity in this direction will be increased rather than diminished. End of chapter 19, The Navies of the Air, Part 2 End of Aeroplanes and Dirigibles of War by Frederick A. Talbot Recording by William Tomko